Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, Episode 9. I'm Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we're going to be talking to archaeologist Stuart Rathbone about his work in Ireland and a little bit about cultural resource management archaeology in Ireland. Let's dig a little deeper. Right, we're here on the Archaeology Show, and we've got with us today um, a guest. It's a uh, somebody I've known online for a while, but now he lives in Reno, so we meet occasionally. Stuart Rathbone, how's it going? Nice, good, Chris. Good, good. So we actually met for lunch the other day in Reno, and we were talking about um, some of the research Stuart is doing, and uh, and some other things. And I thought it'd be great to get him on the show um, to talk about what he's doing. So Stuart, why don't you give the audience uh, an introduction and um, a little bit about yourself? Okay, well. Um I guess I'm a, a jobbing archaeologist. Um, I'm, I'm English. I was born in England anyway. Um, and mm-hmm. I went to school in Bournemouth. I did the archaeology BSc. So it's a, a, quite an unusual degree because it's very science-based. And as soon as I graduated, I moved to Ireland. Um, I got my first job doing commercial work on big road schemes in Ireland. And I did that for eight or nine years. Mm-hmm. Uh, did some really fantastic investigations over there. Uh, big big uh, Bronze Age settlement sites and stuff. Nice. And then slowly sort of moved uh, more into research work. As the, the, the big econo- economic crash really hit Irish archaeology, uh, uh, just as I was changing the sort of focus of my career anyway. So then I spent, I don't know, seven or eight years running a field school, uh, doing training excavations, picking up a mixture of Bronze site, 19th century site, so quite a, a range there on a on an island off the west coast of Ireland. Um, mm-hmm. So that was really good fun. I did some work for one of the universities, sort of working through um, legacy archives to do with a big project in northwest Ireland of the Cager Fields, mm-hmm. which just hitting the news at the moment because they've been reinterpreted. But they're a big Neolithic field system. Um, really extensive archaeology so got to work with some really great material there and then spent a year up in the Shetlands which is practically in Scandinavia um, mm-hmm. so that was good as well got to work on that Nessa Brodger excavation for a bit <laughs> which you might have seen the big uh, Neolithic temple site on the Orkneys um, and then I, I moved to America and I'm living in Reno and traveling around doing uh, the CRM over here for a bit getting my getting orientated because it's, it's quite <laughs> different um it's quite strange because i'm 
what am I now? I'm almost 39. I'm 39 in a couple of weeks. Um, nice. To have to start again as a sort of... It's weird because I'm like a fresh-faced kid out of university <laughs> who doesn't know a lot and has to learn all the methods again. At the same time, I'm a 39-year-old who's, you know, as disgruntled and pissed off as most archaeologists. <laughs> so it's, it's, nice. it's a bit tricky. Um, yeah. And... Whilst I'm doing this, I'm doing a, a postgraduate study with one of the Irish colleges. Um, we'll be talking about that. So yeah. I'm working full-time and doing full-time college remotely, which okay. is a, a weird combination, but it's just about working. Yeah, so Stuart, that's great. Uh, we're going to get into, I hope we have time uh, at the end of this to talk about some of your, your CRM stuff because we had a great discussion on some of the differences between you know, you're, you're new in CRM here, but you've done CRM in Ireland. So, um, it's a really good perspective. So we'll talk about that later, but for now, um, you, you sent us a bunch of images, um, and that we have in the show notes. So if you want to pause this recording and go over, click, if you're, if you're using a podcast player, typically you can just click on the links that we have, um, right in the, right on your screen there, if you're on your phone or something like that, and then go over to the page for this and then take a look at some of the images that Stuart sent us. So Stuart, why don't you uh, explain what you sent us and, um, and and what that is? Like, what are we looking at? Okay, so um, the project I'm doing is with uh, IT Sligo, which is one of the smaller, it's not actually a university, it's a technical institute, but that, that doesn't really matter. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sligo's uh, a great little university. I actually went up there to try and recruit students, and they ended up recruiting me instead. Um, one of my old friends from the CRM jobs um, is now lecturing there, and over the last couple of years, we were doing a sort of hobby project together, and it's evolved into this study. So I was working with Dr. James Bonsall, um, who's a really his stuff is he's a specialist in geophysics um, and does some really amazing research on the challenges of using geophysics in a uh, soaking wet country like Ireland. They're very technical stuff. Um, and what we've been looking at is uh, a system of, they're, they're called signal defensible guard houses, uh, is their official name, but they're the, the Coast Guard, not the Coast Guard. Um, they're the signal stations set up around the Irish coast uh, at the start of the 19th century. And Ireland had uh, a whole series of invasions and threatened invasions so the the politics of this is after the reformation um, and through the 17th century Ireland gets although it's been occupied uh, since 1169 there's been a a presence in Ireland of of English or British I don't want to get into that too much because it is difficult it's been a reasonably settled time. Uh, there's a Gaelic island and an old English island. And then after the Reformation and all the changes, you get this plantation of new um, Protestant English coming into Ireland on mass and repossessing all this land. And it creates the, the main source of tension that, that's still there today between the two countries um, is this, this newer occupation because they're getting rid of the Catholics, or they're taking the land deliberately off the Catholics um, and replacing them with Protestant landlords. And so you get from 
the 1650s onwards, this series of struggles and uprisings where they're trying to get control of Ireland back for the Catholic Irish. Hmm. And the, the most threatening period of that is right at the end of the 18th century. So you've got a big invasion of French forces in 1796, and they come into Bantry Bay uh, on the south coast of Ireland. And they get hit by a winter storm because for some reason they chose to invade in December. So they spent almost <laughs> the whole month stuck in Bantry Bay. And the only reason they didn't get this massive army on shore was the wind was never in the right direction. Um, and eventually the fleet gets broken up and has to go back to, to France and they, they, they lose a number of ships. But hmm. no actual real fighting takes place. And they, they have another go then in um, 1798, and they actually they, they invade twice in 1798. The first one is, is in August, and a small army does land, um, and they take over one of the English towns, Castle Bar, um, which is on the, the west coast, the northwest coast. And they meet up with some of the Irish rebels, and then they, they go off into the Irish Midlands where there's a big battle, which they lose against the, the British army. And they're all dispersed. And then a third invasion um, happens in October when uh, this character, Wolf Tone, who you might know from the Irish music scene, um, there's a big band, the Wolf Tones, that sing rebel songs. <laughs> and nice. if you're ever in Dublin, that Wolf Tone Key is, is one side of the river. You know, the leader of the United Irishmen, and he, they, they fail to land. Again, they get caught in Loch Swilly on the northern coast and there's a, a naval battle and they surrender um tone is taken off to dublin to be hung um and he commits suicide rather than being hung so that's that's what's going on but these these victories or the, the failure of these invasions is much more down to luck than anything else it's just bad weather and bad timing and so that causes a real panic because the the, the people running these rebellions are the united irishmen and it's a really progressive organization that wants an independent island run on behalf of both Catholics and Protestants. And actually that, that sort of um, political aspect won't come round again for another 200 years, really, mm-hmm. this idea that they could cooperate. And they're being supported by the French, who've obviously come through the revolution and the, the, the reign of terror, and it's just stabilising a bit. Napoleon is just making those big moves, getting... Um, towards taking seizing power but he's still a general at this time so you've got this amazing french uh amazingly successful french military thing going on all across europe and really um when you look at it and you, you get into the histories they they did at the times talk about it as a world war um because it is happening in the colonies as well. It's happening on the Indian Ocean. It's happening in the Caribbean. There is a lot of fighting um, going on at this time. And the invasion of Ireland is is key for a, a, an eventual invasion of England. So that's what the big worry is, that they'll, they'll not only just take Ireland, but they'll then use that as a base to invade England from the west. And so you get a huge program of fortifications uh, going up around the Irish coast starting about 1803 and lots of work has been done on the martello towers these are quite famous around europe and around the world there's even a couple over here um there's a few in canada but in the the caribbean they're quite popular 
And these are these circular towers with cannon emplacements on the top of them, very strongly built with a bomb-proof vault. Jeez. Um, brand new uh, type of military architecture. And so they fortified the main uh, bays of Ireland with, with these towers, and they had gun batteries and um, barrack buildings and, and a whole range of stuff. And that's reasonably well known for what little work has been done about the signal stations that connected all these. And that's what we're looking at. So mm -hmm. from Dublin, uh, which if you know Ireland, it, it's halfway up the east coast. It's, re it's really close to the midpoint of the east coast. And from there, they run a chain of signals all the way down the east coast, along the south coast, and all the way up the whole of the west coast, around the northwest corner, and then stop at the very northern tip of Ireland. And they use 81 signal stations. Now, they don't do the... So, uh, real quick, this is signals like like Lord of the Rings type of thing, where they're up on the like a big fire up on the up on the mountaintop. So on top of these structures, um, they they have something that you can see. I would presume fire, right? Is that what it is? I don't know. Well, yeah, that, that's what a lot of people think, and they they um they actually occasionally light signals, fire signals around the coast to celebrate this thing. <laughs> and it they did it last summer for for an anniversary. The fire they may have used fire signals at night, but the the main signals were flag signals. Ah, okay. Um, so there's a big mast with uh, a 50-foot tall mast with all these flag signals on. Okay. Well, the, the fight, no one is going to invade a, a hostile coast in the middle of the night. So the, the, <laughs> the chances of just smashing your ship against the shore is too big. And the same for very bad weather. When it's foggy and heavy, you're just not going to approach these uh, rocky shores. Mm -hmm. So it's... Invasions would happen on a good day, and that's that's when the the flag signals would work. And um, I mean, I could talk more about the flag signals because that's that's part of the evolution of all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to explain what the the signal stations were first, if that's yeah, if that's cool. Yeah, I, I have a quick question too, based on this. You just mentioned that uh, people recently were doing kind of a fire ceremony and celebrating these and relighting them. Are a number of the towers still standing, or? Are they all yeah. sort of archaeological ruins? They're, now, there's one that's been properly reinstated and is in close to its original condition now. And that's a, as part of a museum for the on the old head of Kerry where the Lusitania sank. So it's the museum for the Lusitania and has some, some artifacts that have been dragged up. About, say, roughly half of them have, have fallen down or in very bad ruinous state or have vanished altogether and about a quarter of them uh reasonable and then uh, the, the last quarter are in really good condition they're just missing the roofs and the timber elements but the, the stone of these stations is still there um and what the stations are consisting of is a square this signal defensible guardhouse um which is a square tower it looks like a castle um a late medieval castle in miniature so a very stout um, stone-built square tower with um, corner, like projecting uh, turrets over the corners and over the doors, and then they're set inside a rectangular enclosure, a big walled walled enclosure, um, which would have had like an eight-foot wall around it. Um, so one of the reasons they've survived well is because they're on either on islands or on very remote peninsulas where there aren't any heavy populations. So 
a few of them have been robbed out and you know the stones carted off but mostly they've just been abandoned and in fact they, they spent all this money building these things um and they were built from 1804 through to 1806 and they're only in use for a couple of years by 1808 they they start abandoning them hmm. um they reuse them a bit in the war of 1812 some of them seem to be recommissioned um there's actually american state sanctioned piracy off of the <laughs> irish coast during that war so they, they they use them again and then after that they that's an alternative fact we don't believe that <laughs> absolutely <laughs> that's just one way of seeing it right um yeah <laughs> Um, let me let me ask you real quick before we go to break here in a couple minutes. Um, I'm looking at. I hope people are looking at the images that that you sent us because these are really good. Um, you know, the, this one that we're looking at here is like it's got like four stories. Really, I see four real platforms and then kind of a mid level one in the in the bottom story. Yeah. So, were there like garrisons of people here, or is it, was this just for the people? that were basically manning it that, you know, just like a, a handful of troops or something, or were there a number of troops? Did they do other things in here? And then I guess when they started, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of surprised, like people just didn't move into them because they look like they'd be a halfway decent to place to shelter or live, quite frankly, when, when they abandoned them. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're very well built. The, the interior, you've got like a little basement and then a ground floor room, which would have had the... Um, these things were staffed by ex-seamen, um, pensioners or invalids. So you've got a, a small crew of the, the signal men downstairs, and then on the ground floor there's an office and the officers' quarters, and above that a sort of attic, um, mm -hmm. which we don't know a lot about. It may have had water tanks in, um, okay. and then the, the roof. These things are overbuilt for their purposes. Mm -hmm. So with an eight-foot stone wall around them and that big tower, um, you know, that little garrison could hold off for a long time, but we, we're not sure. We haven't found any contemporary explanations for it, but mm -hmm. we suspect strongly that they were built with the idea that they could be used during a, if there was another rebellion, that you'd then got 80-odd um, redoubts, you know, that, that, that British forces could retreat to if they, they got stuck or they got cut off. Mm -hmm. that they were all these strongly fortified positions that could hold. You know, you, you've got a, an enclosure that's 50 metres long or 30 metres long right. and 20 metres wide and this big tower and there's other buildings inside it so that they could be used in if, if the situation really descended. Um, and I think that's why they were, were constructed in this style. Um, but yeah, the... The actual day-to-day -day running was only about six people. Hmm. Okay. Well, got lots more questions about this, but we're going to take a break real quick, and uh, we'll come back in uh, less than a minute. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... 
Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, we're back. And um, so, again, I, I'll, I'll stress again, I hope you're looking at the images for this on the uh, show notes page because these are, these are really cool. It's not just the building. It's the kind of fortifications around it and, and things like that. So, um, Stuart, you were alluding to, and I, and I asked the question before, but I don't think we got into it. Um, you know, you said they were, they were possibly reused like in the war of 1812 or some of them were anyway. Um, but there's no, like what kind of material culture do you find around these things? They're like, nobody, nobody was using them for just domestic use. No, nobody that lives nearby said, well, the army's not using it anymore. Let's jump in there and, uh, make it our home. Cause I, cause I would. <laughs> yeah, well, what seems to have happened with them is they they've got an amount of dressed stonework on the the windows and the door. There's that wonderful door on the first floor, mm-hmm. and that was accessed via a ladder. So once you're in, there was a retractable ladder, and it means that from the ground you can't actually get into these buildings. Hmm. Um, so what we found as we've gone from site to site is that this dress stonework has all been taken and stripped out of the windows on the majority <laughs> of the site. But then they bust through to, to provide ground floor access because obviously the floors have gone. They take one of the, the ground floor windows and just open it up so it becomes a door and you get these crazy sort of ragged holes on the, the corners, essentially the building mm-hmm. where the, the, the local farmers have, have broken into it to, to let cattle in or to use it as a storage area and have that ground floor access but it's the most dangerous looking thing you've ever seen because you're going in and they've taken the corner of the building away Mm. so but they're not for for all their size the interior space is only about four meters across um so it's just not that handy a, a, a space there's um a couple of them have been converted into holiday homes on the south coast now i haven't seen any of those in in person i'm i'm doing the northwest provinces there's one that got turned into a lighthouse so it's encased in, inside a lighthouse that's on one of the um Aran islands off of, off of galway mm. bay but generally they're just abandoned um they, they they were covered in slates and all the slates have been robbed off them and used for roofs around there so really they were just plundered but they're, they're not a particularly practical building for other purposes i guess yeah it sounds like it sounds like not a whole lot was practical because like you said earlier um, the way that they're constructed sounds like they were overbuilt. Um, like somebody almost either had too much money, or uh, or or was overcompensating, or was planning on a much bigger. Yeah, conflict. well, we had all that money <laughs> uh, pouring in from India and places at the time, so they 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 weren't skints. No. Um, so these are all being financed by Britain, right? By England mm-hmm. and the British yeah. government. Okay. They didn't make Ireland pay for them. <laughs> yeah, they probably did. Uh. <laughs> Sorry. No. <laughs> That was a terrible joke. <laughs> that's that's what we've come to understand how it happens. So, <laughs> um, how, what what kind of uh, now you've got a lot of um, you've got a lot of these drawings here. What what have you done um, archaeologically on these? Like you guys say you, you visited these sites. What have you done from an archaeological standpoint? Just like like recorded the buildings. Have you dropped in any units to done any excavating? Yeah, what's so what's happened there? The what, what we've been trying to do is develop something we we sort of tagged um, zero-budget archaeology. And we're not the first people to have ever used the term, but what we mean by that is 
part of this project is an experiment in using new technology um, to record these these buildings, um, which almost none of them have been previously recorded. The one that got reconstructed has been, and there's a couple of sketch plans of maybe two or three other sites out of the AUT. So the, the, the goal was to go and create very good records of these things before they fall down because the, the sea air is getting to them. Um, it's dissolving the mortar and they, without intervention at, at an at expensive level, um, these are all going to fall down, I would say, in the next 50 years or so. Um, so we wanted to get out and record them. And what we're doing is using, we didn't have any money, you see. It, was, it started off as just a hobby project that myself and James were involved with at the weekend. So we came up with the idea of using demo software and um, free-to-use software and then just a recording scheme based on equipment we already had, stuff that will run on a simple laptop that you can use with a, a cheap digital camera and take the records. Um, using all the resources that now are available like Google Earth and, and Bing Maps to get the aerial imagery. So at each site we're turning up and doing a, a simplified version of photogrammetry where we take a load of overlapping photos of, of each wall face and then um, use the perspective correction tool in um, PaintShop Pro uh, to straighten up the the, the angles okay. so that we've got something that um, not disappearing um, and narrowing at the top. And from that, in AutoCAD on the student license of AutoCAD, tracing over them and creating these very detailed elevations, internal and external elevations. Theme. And that that's at a level of detail that we can then really interrogate the building to find out how they work. Um, it's like. Uh, I think it was Audrey Horning talking about post-medieval or historic archaeology and saying it's an archaeology of surfaces because a lot of the work is withstanding buildings. And I think that's definitely what we're doing. We're doing these, you haven't really got phasing as such, but there are all these details in the buildings that there's no record of. You know, there's, there's very little written about these things. We've, right. we've figured out that there's a they're capturing rainwater off the roof and bringing it down. You can see a, a drainage channel built into the corner of the walls. We found that there's basements. There's no mention anywhere of them having basements, but they've all got basements. They've all got this weird attic space and this strange... Um, there's like a mezzanine level on the ground floor. These two um, mm -hmm. big, heavy shelves almost coming across the building. So we're taking that right. sort of discovery because of how well this recording technique works. But what's great about it is you're able to go out with a... I, I can do them by myself. It, it only takes me an hour to record the buildings. I mean, it then takes me a week or two to process them. But in terms of field work, you're able to run out <laughs> with just a small backpack, a ranging rod, a camera, a notepad, some, some measuring tapes, and create these um, these elevations. Sounds like you really benefit from some drone photography too, um, just lovely. to get out pie. And that's, that's one of the limits of the method that we can't yeah. get to the, the angles at the very tops of the buildings are, are difficult. Well, I'll tell you what, you you bring me out there this next summer and I'll bring my drone with me and we'll do it. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I'm wondering, um, real, just kind of like a side thought that I've been having. What's access like on these things? You said there's, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of them. So who, who owns them? What's, what's, 
I know I know Scotland had some things that I just wasn't used to, like the I think it was called like the right to walk over or something like that. Like you could just like walk onto people's property and check stuff out, like all these old castles and things like that. That's not to say that um, the the government owns them or something like that, but um, they are on private land. But that you could you could walk up to them. Is it similar in Ireland? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's there's no real uh, right to access land in Ireland as as there would be in Scotland, but people mm-hmm. are just very much more relaxed about it. So there's been the odd site where you know it's fenced <laughs> off and we've we had to go and find the people and and make arrangements, but generally. You've got you're talking about open moorland and open um, upland peaks and stuff, so it's not like there's any crop or anything that you're disturbing. The only thing that's out there will be sheep grazing on the stuff. Right. And you know people mm-hmm. are pretty cool. You can just just walk up to most of them. Um, very few of them have been incorporated into the tourist landscape, and that's something we'd like to address. That you know you, you can put. A bit more work into access and, and let people go out there but of course that brings in problems with the stability of the buildings mm-hmm. you know the, the, the councils can't get involved okay. in taking people out and, and suggesting they go to these places if the buildings themselves aren't safe to visit so mm-hmm. how how far along are you guys with the recording project like this like how many how many do you have left what's your if you had if you could put an end on on this phase of the project, you know how far along are you? Well, we've done all the field work for this this phase. One of the things that's happened is okay. so we've done I think there's 35 sites in our study area. So we we visited and, and recorded all of those. One of the things that's happened as we've done the project is the technology has changed. And so we started this back in 2009, I suppose. And uh what Three or four years ago, this this 3D photogrammetry became available. Um, or had one, two, three D cap. Mm-hmm. First one we're using, and we're using um, photo scan now. Mm-hmm. And the early sites, some of those we'd like to revisit and and get sets of photos that we could use with the new software. But I think that's that's been really interesting in how quickly the the technology is developing. And even if we did go back, there's no. Uh, guarantee that by the time we've got this thing finished and handed in, we won't be out of date again anyway because something else will have come along. And you, you mentioned drones. I mean, <laughs> the idea of having a drone fly over one of these things was was completely out of the question um, six or seven years ago. Yeah, I managed to get my first drone fly over one site this this summer. We, you know, met a guy. I was doing some other work with him, and he happened to have a drone and, and flew over one of them for me. So. Again, that, that hobby level equipment. Um, I mean, I'd have to look at mm-hmm. a bit of a grant and get myself one of the phantom models and, and go back and do some of these. But that's definitely a, a weird challenge that we can't keep up with how fast the technology is changing. <laughs> it sounds like um, with the amount of wind in the locations where you guys are at, that uh, a lot of drones, unless you got the really expensive, um, heavier ones that could handle the, the wind speeds, um, the one I've got can handle maybe 30 miles an hour of wind and, and still maintain some really good stability. But uh, it sounds like with those wind, I mean, honestly, kite photography mm-hmm. would actually be really good That'd for be you guys. Fun. Because if you've always got the yeah, wind, it yeah, it'd be really fun, wouldn't yeah. it? Um, that's, that's got another advantage in that it's lightweight equipment you, i mean you're talking about access some of these exactly. you're, you're hiking yeah. for an hour or more over pretty rough ground to get there so you know your big <laughs> big heavy flight case yeah. for a, a drone might be a problem oh my god mine weighs a ton i would never want to carry that more than like <laughs> outside the trunk of a car yeah that thing's enormous and that you're totally right but but a kite 
a kite with its rig and the uh, and the handles and the camera and everything, I mean, you can stick in a small backpack and still have room yeah, for snacks think, and water. You're, you're on about being in Scotland where the the kite photography people have done wonderful work in, in Scotland, working with school groups and local groups. And that, that ties into what we're doing, that we want these methodologies to be repeatable by anyone. So other students can go out and use them. Mm-hmm. And local groups recording their own history will be able to produce, use these methods, not have to invest a load of money in them and be able to produce really good results. And, and kite photography being cheap is something to definitely have a look at um, mm-hmm. in the later stages, even just to test it on a couple of sites and say there's more potential. So besides going back and, and re-imaging some of these with, with newer technologies, what uh, if, if money were no object, <laughs> what would another phase of this project, what would you like to do next after you got some really good imagery on all these? So Ireland is split into four provinces, and we've, we've done the work on two of them. Um, it would be nice to get the other two, um, which would be another six weeks or eight weeks worth of work. Uh, but we haven't done any excavation. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be nice. One of these sites, again, the site that's been restored has been excavated, and another one has had some work in the immediate proximity. But finding, you know, there's, there's there's certain elements, there's secondary buildings within these enclosures that we can only see as very low foundations. Put those up and see what what those buildings are actually used for. Um, and it would be really nice. Funnily enough, the basements inside the towers, we don't know how far down they go. Because at every example, they're, they're in built. So it'd be lovely to get down to the bottom of the basement and see if they had a proper floor in there. Maybe, you know, what artifacts might be in it to, to see what they were using that space for. Um, so that, that would be the, the things I'd love mm-hmm. to do. Um, so though you haven't done archaeology in the process of kind of scanning and recording these buildings, do you get evidence of the people who are living there? I know in a lot of military outposts and things like that, you get... Um, you know, graffiti, basically, and people carving their names into lintels and things like that. Do you find any of that? Yeah, there's a little bit, but not not very much. And I, again, it, it may be down to the, the having an officer present in the building or, at all times that the, the men wouldn't be carving in, their names into too many things because he's around huh. at them. And <laughs> you, you can sort of kick to the scene and shout at them and saying, come on, own up, who wrote that? And when it's your name, it's a little bit hard to say, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, Brian did it. Why does it say Tabby? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, um, and, and there's nothing, we, we've never found anything at any of the sites that you could say, oh, this is a, a, a part of the, the building or, or some artifact that, that goes with it. So whether, even if mm-hmm. we did excavate, whether there'd be very, very scant traces of, of material culture, um, but you'd think, you know, five or six years of occupation, there must be something to dig up. Yeah. But we're not. We we did talk about doing a, 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 some trenches at one site, but nothing really came of it. And to be honest, just just doing the the work we've got is pretty time consuming. So. <laughs> well, before we get into something else, we're about a minute from the break, so I think we'll take it early and uh, we'll come back for the third segment and wrap up our discussion. Back in a second. Archaeology and Ale is a free monthly talk presented by Archaeology in the City from the University of Sheffield Archaeology Department. 
That's where the archaeology part of archaeology and ale comes from. As for the ale part, the talk is held upstairs at the Red Deer, a great local pub on Pitt Street in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, on the last Thursday of every month. If you're in Sheffield, do come along, and don't worry, non-ale alternatives are also available. If you can't make it to Sheffield, never fear. You can listen to the Archaeology and Ale Talk every month, right here on the Archaeology Podcast Network. And now, back to the show. Okay, so we're back with our final segment with uh, with Stuart, and I guess while we've been talking about this, um, some of the images you have are um, some three D reconstructions of the um, of one of the signal towers overlaid onto Google Earth, and you can see mm. the fortifications around it, which which led me to believe or led me to think: are there any are there any related structures or settlements to any of these um, single signal towers? I know they're in very remote locations, so. Um, you know, but are there are there anything around uh, around these besides the fortifications that were put up as a result of these people being here? You know, I, I doubt there's any like villages or anything, but you know, who knows? But um, but is there anything related to these that you guys have seen in your research? No, no, very much not. Um, yeah. And I think one of the things they're doing here is there's a process that goes on in this time period of taming the coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's what they termed in Scotland with the lighthouses where you've got these very remote areas that the government have no control over, no effective <laughs> control over. And this is part of the process of getting that, that land sort of uh, more enmeshed in state control. So you, you get these, and then the follow-up, within about 20 years, they're putting up the Coast Guard stations all around the coast. And the Coast Guards aren't like Baywatch. You know, They're not there to stop people drowning. <laughs> they're there to control trade and stop people smuggling and make sure they're paying their tariffs and their taxes mm-hmm. so again and not a very welcome um presence being imposed on these very autonomous very remote areas so yeah, yeah. um that may have been the first baywatch reference on the archaeology podcast network um <laughs> i'm glad to have it though uh <laughs> nice nice well Stuart, uh is there anything else um you know that any links we can put in that you want people to go check out that we can put down on the uh, on the show notes page for this site. Yeah, we've got um, an ArcGIS online database again, more free software. Mm-hmm. So there's an interactive map that people can look up, um, and they can see the sites we've done and and some photos of the different sites. And over time, that's going to become a really uh, we're going to put a lot more detail into that. So that's one to sort of keep an eye on if if people are interested in these things. Okay. Um, yeah, so if anybody wants to check out, uh, check that out, definitely check the links in the show notes. And like I've said before, check out the pictures um, associated with this because they got some, some really cool stuff up there, some really cool, really highly detailed drawings. So, so anybody sitting out there with a, with a fat checkbook that wants to write uh, Stuart a check to, to go and do these, take a look at those images. <laughs> You'll see what you get out of it. <laughs> I think you're advertising on the wrong uh, platform for that. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> All right. Well, that was really fascinating. Um, I think in the last maybe 15 minutes here, we can go into uh, a little bit of our discussion that we had the other day on some of the differences between um, cultural resource management in the United States and in Ireland, um, or in the UK, I should say, um, where you've worked. And like like you were kind of alluding to in the beginning, you know, you, you had quite a bit of experience, uh, you know, over in the UK doing different things. But now you come over here and you're you're back to square one. 
which is how we like to do things. Yeah. Um, I mean, that just reminds me of a guy that I worked for um, on, I think it was my second project ever. You know, he's probably at the time in his late 50s, I think, um, has a master's degree, he was a project manager on this project, doing all these things. And it was my wife's third project ever in, in CRM. And she was also just a tech on this project. But then, you know, five years later, he decides he wants to change the scenery and a change of venue and decides to come work in the Great Basin in CRM. Well, him and his 20 years of experience got him uh, exactly a field tech job. And she was his boss. She was his crew chief <laughs> on that project. Because <laughs> that's how we like to do things, right? Your experience means nothing. So um, what... what uh, First off, um, you know we know that you've got you've got some experience over here. You've worked in a couple of different areas um, here in Nevada and, and, and around. But uh, what was your CRM experience yet like in the UK? Where where in the UK have you done um, uh, commercial archaeology? Well, I've, I've actually not done much in. I've done in the UK. I've done a bit like six months in the mm-hmm. the Fens of East Anglia, which was um, a new environment for me. Um, that was quite late in the stage. Northern Ireland, I did a lot of work up there. Mm-hmm. Most of my commercial stuff was in the Irish Republic, though. So that's that's where you know my heart or, or the, the the most of my experience in, in commercial work was done on motorway projects, freeways um, mm-hmm. in in the Republic. Okay. And I one of the interesting things I thought when we were having our discussion is uh, is the type of work that's done over there um, because it's not it's not a lot of uh, like pedestrian, like big, big, large scale pedestrian survey, like we do here in the West Coast of the United States. You know these these massive projects where you're just walking in the desert, or even large projects where you're shovel testing and things like that. Can you describe? Can you describe for our listeners a little bit what a, you know, what what like a typical project might be like in your experience um, over over on that side? Yeah. Okay. So I think I think there's a big difference in scale um, of, of what. What, what the work is uh, that that's the most obvious bit to me but over here with this, this work out in Nevada where you're doing whole mountain ranges or valley systems and you're, you're looking at these these great big areas and you're working in little crews spread out across the landscape looking for artifacts really we would be working in Ireland on on a much different system where you're you're looking at the footprint of the impact of the development so if you're doing a motorway, it's an 80 meter wide strip. It might go 20 or 30 miles or 50 or 60 miles on the bigger ones or a gas pipeline or anything like that. But you've got these linear footprints and you're going to try and dig up every piece of archaeology you encounter along that narrow little strip. So the phases involved are quite different. We do a lot of historic research and uh, aerial photography and geophysics before even moving into the area. Um, so we've got an idea of what's there and then we're doing this test trenching regime where you dig a mechanically excavate a trench the whole way along one of these these areas with offsets at 90 degrees all the way along so you you're digging up 10 percent of this whatever the area is and you know it's big you're digging Mm -hmm. up 10 percent having a look for actual physical um, remains there's much less emphasis on artifacts. We're really interested in finding uh, pits and ditches and walls and, and banks and things that have been structured. And they're very visible given the, um, the type of geology you have in Ireland and the, the agricultural regime. It, it's quite conducive to these things surviving. Again, quite different from Nevada where 
you know, people will be working their whole careers out here without really ever seeing a, a clear house, for instance. <laughs> right. <laughs> they understand it. You know, that the, these things just aren't showing up. <laughs> and then when you're excavating, you're you're finding one of these sites along, and you, your your team will be assigned to a particular site along one of these routeways. And then, depending on the size of it, you might spend eight months there, or, or you know, three weeks, two weeks, eight months, a year, eighteen months isn't unheard of, and you're just working with a big crew of people in, in a small space. That, you know, your site might be 200 metres long and, and 80 metres wide that, that's defined as this site. And then you're just going to slowly clear out the, the area of the, the archaeological deposit through the excavation. Mm -hmm. But it's very much more social, it seems to me, where you've got 40 or 50 people working in a team and um, all on, on that particular site together. Um, as opposed to these, even when you've got multiple crews surveying in Nevada, everyone just meets up in the morning and then disappears, and you see the <laughs> same three people for the rest of the day, yeah. and then you drive home together. Um, so that's that's quite different. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I must say that I I, I can't emphasise enough how the fitness requirements seem to be much higher over here. Um, this <laughs> idea of walking 12, 15 miles a day every day and over rough ground and steep terrain. Um, and, and higher elevations. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, I'm a, tremendously impressed with the, the hard work and the effort people put into it here. Um, I, I just, I'd like to see more buildings. <laughs> <laughs> well you have to see the mining complexes i guess sometimes there's buildings left um you yeah. know but most of the time you're right there isn't uh, and, and part of that reason is because even even when you think you're out in the middle of nowhere in nevada um somebody lives near there whether it was you know early settlers or native americans that have been there forever um you know as soon as these mines and these other things are abandoned just like your uh, your signal towers, the the materials repurposed. You know, people come yeah. by and they take the wood because it's been seasoned out in the desert and it's not going to warp anymore. And it's it's actually decent wood now, <laughs> and then they can use it for other things. Even the nails, and then they you know, shoot up whatever's remains. Exactly. Yeah, whatever wasn't used for construction, it's got bullet holes in it. So yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. So well, that's cool. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely. Definitely a different environment out here, and, and you know the the thing I like about the United States, particularly, I've worked in, um, I've worked in just about just about every region in the continental U.S. I haven't worked in Alaska or Hawaii, but I've worked in the Northeast, you know, Southeast, Northwest, Southwest, Great Basin, California, um, Midwest. I've worked in you know most of these different areas, but we have we really run the run the gambit on different things, um, and it's very very different archaeology. You know, say here in the Great Basin, like what you're talking about, people don't even understand what you're saying over in the East Coast because they're not going to walk 12 miles in a day, but they are going to dig 80 shovel tests in a day. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. So, <laughs> and that's got its own special kind of hell <laughs> associated with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I did a little bit of that in Illinois, and uh, oh my god, that almost had me going back on a plane to Ireland <laughs> I, for good reason. <laughs> Yeah, it didn't help that it was my first job and it was December. Oh my so. god! Well, yeah, that was my first contract job too. Shovel tests and skim shoveling in December in the Midwest. Oh my god! <laughs> and it it really does. Uh, you decide if you're going to stay in archaeology or not. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
pretty yeah, quickly. I, I bet there's a lot of people that don't make their first six months. <laughs> yes. Well, that that though, that's real quick. That's one of the things I love about CRM archaeology, and that's what I try to tell new people. I was like, listen, if you hate the job you're in right now, simply quit and move. Just go somewhere else, work in another region, work another job. You know, the one you're on might suck right now, but there's a good one right around the corner. I, I, I promise. That's a huge lie, but I promise anyway. So anyway. <laughs> no, I was just intrigued by, I think there's a big difference in the United States and, you know, the UK between the acceptance and reliance on geophysics and contract archaeology. Chris, what are your mm. thoughts on that? Because the companies that I've worked for, a lot of them wanted to do more geophysics um, and do GPR and things like that, but just you know, the funds weren't necessarily there. And it's, mm -hmm. I think academia has embraced it a lot more than the contract world here. Well, and you, you, you nailed it. It's money. Um, you know, we, we, we barely have, with the competition for projects, we barely have the money to be able to say, we're going to get this done within this, within this time frame and within this price range. And, uh, and, and if there's any left over, you know, it's, it's simply just to be able to keep the company afloat. I mean, I feel like a lot of firms that are some of the some of the smaller firms that don't have the larger engineering firm enveloped around them to help them pay for things. I mean, really, they're just making payroll in a lot of cases. Um, now, that's not to say every firm. There are some. There are some some places that are that are really have a high research emphasis, and they're able to pull that off because they're they have the size to do that. You know, it's 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 it comes down to two things: money and time. Because even if you do have the money, even if you do convince your developer or whatever that you're you know hey i want to do this other big gpr study or something like that they're like great you're dragging what across the ground well i've got a bulldozer sitting there getting charged 300 dollars an hour waiting for you to do that you know because they you know they're we're, we're the last step usually for them to to come in and do their construction so so even if you do have the money if you have your own money your own extra money you may not have the time to do what you want to do yeah. um simply because because of the time frame now that being said, out here on the West Coast, I feel like we have more of an opportunity to do something like that because, um, you know, we're, we are, like Stuart said, we are clearing large sections of land. So we can we can clear out a whole a whole swath of land for a developer to do whatever they want in, like if it's um, exploration mining or something like that. And then on this tiny corner over here, we found this fantastic site. You know, they might let us they might let us get some more time. And, and spend some more money to do some more interesting geophysical type stuff if we have the time and resources to do that. So, but on the East Coast, you're working with much smaller properties, and you know there's there's literally a fleet of, of bulldozers waiting to <laughs> waiting to come in right after you. So I think that's the that's the big thing. That's interesting about the money because one of the the reasons that it's done and it's done normally a year or, or two in advance of the uh, the, the actual construction taking place. Is the state agencies that are the organizing the work want it done because the geophysics gives you such a good idea of what's there, mm -hmm. it makes scheduling easier. So yeah. it was found to be cost effective in the terms that yeah, you pay some money, but now we've got we're able to allot the right amount of time and resources to an area in advance because we have a clue what it's there, you know, rather than going in. Blinded. You, you nailed it, Stuart, because that's the, that's the thing that people can't see. It's the, it's the same old argument that we make for people going paperless over here. They're like, well, I don't have the money to look into tablets and do these things. We're like, listen, you can't afford not to do this. And it's the same argument. My, my friend Dan Bigman, who, who owns Bigman Geophysical over in the East Coast, you know, that's, that's his whole point. He's like, listen, it doesn't cost extra to do a GPR study of this whole thing because it will actually limit the amount of work that you have to do because we, we determined 
through non-destructive methods that there's actually nothing over there. <laughs> so, you know, here, dig here instead because there's actually something here, you know, versus the rest of the landscape. So uh, you're totally right. Plus, Stuart, maybe you can comment on this uh, in the last couple of minutes we have here. Um, I've heard this before and I totally believe it, but I think Time Team um, did a lot to um, to alert the public in the UK in general to elevate their knowledge of what certain geophysical methods are and and so you know a developer can't just get around something because they they know the value of these things because of time team's success in in educating people about that oh undoubtedly yeah. um you know it's, it's weird to think things like magnetic susceptibility are part of common knowledge now and that's right. only <laughs> you know? yeah that's that's fantastic and that's, yeah and and of course you know the, the the thing with geophysics when you're hitting good archaeology is it produces such a clear image yeah. and you can show people you know without digging it up and quickly what these things look like um so that they're, they're, they're great for for press releases and and visually um all that stuff that's come out of stonehenge recently you know the the, mm-hmm. the riverside project hundreds of new sites found with the geophysics and it goes straight into the newspaper because it looks really good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, hopefully, I, I wish uh, I wish our version of Time Team had had more um, more public success. You know, we've talked to the uh, we've talked on the CRM Archaeology podcast to the hosts of Time Team uh, a few years ago, and um, they just didn't get the funding. You know, and I and that's that's tied to ratings in the public and things like that, which is really disappointing. So. Um, but hopefully sometime in the future we'll have another show uh, similar to that where we can have the same level of, of education over here in the United States. So we're not surprised when, you know, Native Americans are upset about a, a pipeline going through their land. You know, we understand why they're upset. Mm-hmm. Anyway, thanks a lot, Stuart, for coming on. This is a really fascinating discussion. Um, these signal towers are amazing, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing more things come out of that. Thanks for coming on the show. Okay, thanks very much for having me. All right, and... Uh, Join us next time. We've got some more fantastic interviews lined up. And uh, thanks for thanks for listening to the Archaeology Show. And be sure to check out the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. This show is edited by Christopher Sims of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Go check it out. Check out our next episode in two weeks. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in other podcasts that focus on the humanities. In fact, if you search Twitter for the hashtag humanitiespodcasts, you'll find plenty of shows on history, language, literature, philosophy, art, and more. These are podcasts by people who enjoy telling stories, exploring the arts in our world, and who want to share their knowledge. Some examples of podcasts you'll find are Go Dig a Hole, an archaeology podcast, the Trojan War podcast, which retells the classic myth, and As We Like It, where three friends talk about film adaptions of Shakespeare. Search the hashtag Humanities Podcast today or follow Humanities Podcasters on Twitter. And if you're a Humanities Podcaster, use the hashtag in your tweets so others can find you. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.